Hey, Bizarros, we got a great show for you this episode. Japanese fart battles, Floridian camel biters, arsenic munching saltworms, all this and more coming up on this first episode of Bizarro Aficionado. Hey everyone, I'm Gaz Morgan and this is Bizarro Aficionado. Welcome to the first episode. I really wanted this to be a showcase of the various segments that we're going to rotate through from time to time, along with interviews, roundtables, and the occasional shit show of complete buffoonery, which I guarantee will go on. It's been a big learning curve, so getting used to the editing software, mics, creating a portable solution for on-location recording, because I have a lot of really bizarro things and places that I want to report on and take you to. So I welcome you, and I hope you'll find a home here with the rest of us bizarros. And again, if you uh, you get into this and you really like it, make sure you go on there and hit follow or subscribe, because that really helps me out. And then you'll be sure to get every single episode right into your box as it comes through and is released. But, as they say in letter, Kenny, pitter-patter, let's get started. Welcome to Bizarro News. All the news is new and improved. Let's get into it. 21 classic images of Japanese fart battles from the 19th century. That's right, I said fart battles. Some say the paintings are a kind of political cartoon serving as a commentary on Western influence, but no one knows for sure. The later years of Japanese Edo period, which was about 1603 to 1868, saw an influx of foreign influence into this traditionally closed society. It was thus a time of profound change for many Japanese people, and xenophobia was on the rise. One artist, or possibly a group of artists, it's still quite uncertain, chose to represent that struggle between old and new in an unusual way. The Higasen Scroll is a long series of paintings executed in a traditional Japanese style that depicts an epic battle between combatants, whose primary weapon seems to be flatulence. In fact, he gassin translates as fart battle, fart war, or fart competition, and that perfectly describes what's depicted in the scroll. The fart battle itself is, is something to behold. So, bending over and hiking up their robes, the men and women in this scroll let loose with mighty streams of gas, uprooting trees, blowing horses and cats through the air as they battle their opponents. Meanwhile, other combatants take a more sophisticated approach, storing up their collective farts in sacks and releasing them like bombs. Yeah, I have a similar story. I, many years ago, I had a colostomy for a brief time. Well, never mind. You don't want to hear about that. But beyond the farting itself, there seems to be a basic narrative in the scroll. A group of men came upon another group eating noodles who defended themselves by bending over and farting at the other group. That first group then returns fire and a battle breaks out between the two groups as one side tries to defend itself from the gas using large ornamental fans. This really just seems like every day I spent in my dorm room in college 
From there, the battle descends into madness as others join in. Some try to protect themselves with screens, which the farts blast right through, as you would expect. People caught in the crossfire cover their noses as they find themselves blown off their feet in a whirlwind of gas. Others then gallop away on horseback, firing backwards at their pursuers. Now, the scroll itself is an interesting story. Though it presents a memorable and singular story, little is known about the scroll for sure. For one, no one is sure when it was produced, though experts believe that it dates from sometime around the 1840s. We also don't know who created it. It's possible that it was something like a running joke among a group of artists who each added to the scroll over a period of years. There's also different interpretations of what the scroll is supposed to represent. Some suggested it was a kind of political cartoon meant to comment on Western influence in Japan. With farts. At the time, Japan was struggling with the influence of Europeans and America who were forcing unfavorable trade agreements on the country. Wow, not a lot has changed, has it? And bringing in new ideas like Christianity that many Japanese people saw as a threat to their traditional culture and values. And the Higasen Scroll may have been a veiled attack on Westerners. One interpretation says that the Japanese people in the scroll are using farts to attack the wealthy merchants who collaborated with foreign powers, while another interpretation says that the aggressors are meant to just represent Westerners themselves. But whatever the underlying meaning, these artists certainly didn't shy away from crude humor. And farts were often a favorite subject. The Japanese appreciate a good fart joke as much as anyone, and images of people being blown away by farts even show up in their other works from the period. But the Higasen likely remains the most well-known of the bunch. So I will, uh, I will post this article from allthatisinteresting.com in the show notes so you can take a look at these, take a gander at these, and uh, see if anyone you know is in them. This next article is from Atlas Obscura, and uh, it's entitled California's Saltiest Lake is Chock Full of Bizarre Roundworms. Life Finds a Way. If you're human, the waters of Mono Lake aren't for you. Besides being an otherworldly strain of beautiful, the California body of water is salty and very basic, with a pH of 10, the equivalent of detergent. In addition to levels of arsenic around six times what is considered safe for drinking. No fish live in the lake, but some animal life finds a way. Namely ones that thrive in the toughest conditions, known collectively as extremophiles. Mono Lake's inhabitants have names that refer to their hostile home. Brine shrimp, alkali flies, for instance. Now another handy species can be added to Mono Lake's list of aquatic denizens nematodes, including a new arsenic-adoring species from the genus Anonina. Anu, anu, anuanima? Anu, them. We'll call them them. The creature, described in the current journal Current Biology, is a roundworm with a couple of unique evolutionary traits. Chief among them, the capacity to survive more than 500 times the amount of arsenic that is fatal for humans. But James Lee, a, a nematologist formerly of the Sternberg Lab at the California Institute of Technology, which conducts the research, wasn't all too surprised to find them. What's remarkable about extremophiliac nematodes 
in fact, all extremophile species is how much they have to reveal about resilience and the innovative strategies they use to survive on this planet, he says. The newly discovered species of Alnima, I think it's Alnima, has a few other evolutionary tricks up its oral cavity. Oh, they went there. It has three sexes, female, male, and hermaphrodite. Lee says that the male and female anima may help preserve genetic diversity in established populations, while the hermaphroditic worms are uniquely suited to trailblazing into new areas, since they reproduce solo. The nematodes are also viviparous, viviparous, meaning that instead of laying eggs like most nematodes, they have live births. Lee and his colleagues are particularly excited about the Alnema species arsenic resistance, which, while documented in two other nematodes, has never before been apparent in an extremophilic one. We believe this could shine new light on how arsenic moves through and affects animal cells, he said. An open question that's especially important since arsenic is one of the most common environmental toxins that affects humans. The nematodes at Mono Lake also confirm a long-held truth that nematodes are not only one of the most robust creatures on Earth, but they are also among the most abundant. In 1913, nematologist Nathan Cobb wrote that if all the matter in the universe except the nematodes were swept away, our world would still be dimly recognizable. We would find its mountains, hills, vales, rivers, lakes, and oceans, represented by a film of nematodes. Mono Lake would come through clear. These animals have really mastered how to survive on Earth, Lee said. We could really learn a lot from them. So, yeah, arsenic worms, nematodes, and other things that can't be pronounced, but that's pretty fascinating. It's amazing how fragile that we actually are as humans compared to some of these small creatures like the nematode. It's really crazy, you know, how advanced we think we are, but in the long run, we are really very fragile creatures. All right, our next article comes from IGN.com, and I'm sure you've heard about this one, but the the uh, fast food restaurant Wendy's has made a tabletop role-playing game where you battle Ronald McDonald. So Wendy's, the fast food chain best known for their square burgers and pigtailed mascot, is apparently trying to get into the tabletop market. Announced via a tweet, the 100-page rulebook for Feast of Legends, a, Wen- a Wendy's-themed fantasy tabletop RPG in the vein of Dungeons & Dragons, is free to download and surprisingly not completely terrible. The rules are simplified version of what you'd experience in D&D 5th edition, which is clearly the inspiration for much of the book, with a few unique alterations thrown in. Ability stats consist of strength, intelligence, charm, grace, and arcana, and players will build characters that ascribe to an order of adventure, such as the order of the spicy chicken sandwich that deals (laughs) magical fire damage, or the order of the baconator, there it is, that's mine, which grants resistance to cold damage, thanks naturally to a love of fresh, never-frozen beef. Yes, the fast food puns are unrelenting, and there is never going to be a point in which you aren't aware you're being repeatedly slapped across the face by capitalistic synergy, or as mentioned recently by Rogan in the uh, 
in their fast food podcast, Meat Slapped. God, I was just waiting for a reference to be able to say Meat Slapped. So where was I? Let's see here. So Feast of Legends, but at least it's a completely designed, accessible tabletop role-playing game rule set that manages both honor and to have fun with its source of material. Critical failures, for example, are now formally referred to as big oops. Yeah, that's pretty much it when you roll a one. For those of you out there that haven't ever played a tabletop role-playing game or has never seen Stranger Things, you should leave your house and get off Facebook and try it out. It even includes a surprisingly lengthy pre-written campaign, pitting you against an evil jester whose lair is complete with play, place, and ball pit, hell-bent on spreading a scourge of frozen beef across the realm of beef's keep. If you want to check out the Feast of Legends for yourself, you can download the PDF for free or watch a heavily sponsored session of the game played at the cast of the popular D&D stream Critical Role. If you're more interested in actual tabletop RPGs, uh, you can check out their guide to getting started in D&D, which I'll also post in the, fo- the, uh, the show notes, or why is it so popular these days, hashtag Stranger Things, or have a look at the recommendations of finding the right tabletop game for you. So that'll be in the show notes under the link for um, Wendy's Tabletop RPG, and I think it sounds fun. I've certainly played some really strange tabletop games where... You could play characters such as, uh, oh, let's say it was a cow with spider legs that likes to eat curtains. Or my character was a starfish detective with a uh, some sort of a uh, cupcake or something like that, or a croissant as a sidekick. So there's some pretty really weird and fun RPGs out there. So even if you're not into the medieval thing, you can really take RPG as far as you want to go from... From things like the far future to the distant past, the Vietnam War, to World War One, World War Two, or blend them all. So there's a lot out there. So check that out if you're interested. That'll be in the show notes. Our next article comes from News Six in Orlando at uh, amp.clickorlando.com because if you're going to do a show about bizarre and strange things, and you're going to do news articles, and you don't have an article in there from Florida. You're not doing your job. This one's entitled, Florida Woman Bites 600-Pound Camel's Testicles After It Sat On Her. A Florida woman bit a 600-pound camel's testicles Wednesday. So that's about two weeks ago, or a week ago. It was on Wednesday. I don't know when it was. They all run together. I'm 48. Everything runs together at this point. When it sat on her after she crawled into an enclosure at a petting zoo. Bitch, you went in the in the enclosure. You're, whatever happens to you, you brought on yourself. So the fact that she bit these camels, camel nuts, I, the camel didn't deserve it. She did. But let's find out what actually happened here. The petting zoo was at the Tiger Truck Stop in Gross Tete, Louisiana. No, why is it in Florida? I'm so lost on this. Iberville Parish Sheriff, no, where the hell's Iberville? Officials told the advocate, who's the advocate? On Sunday that Edmund Lancaster had been throwing treats to their dog under the camel's fence. Edmund? Who the hell's Edmund? Their dog went into the enclosure and his wife. 
Oh, this is this is where punctuation is really important. So, I assume <laughs> the dog went into the enclosure and did not also go into his wife. But uh, the dog went into the enclosure and then I assume also did his wife, Gloria Lancaster. As rich as a Lancaster. Uh, 73. 73-year-old Gloria Lancaster of Milton. There are so many towns in this article. 73-year-old Gloria Lancaster crawled under barbed wire to retrieve her pet. That's when the 600-pound camel sat on her. She told deputies she bit the camel's testicles to free herself. The woman was taken to a hospital. I would guess so. I... I... You heard what I've read. Deputy Lewis Hamilton Jr. said the couple provoked the camel and cited them for a leash law violation. For the dog, I assume, and not the wife or the camel. He wrote in his report that the Lancasters gave numerous inconsistent verbal statements, according to the advocate. (laughs) Tiger Truck Stop is about 16 miles outside Baton Rouge and keeps Casper the Camel as an attraction. Casper. Milton is located in the Florida Panhandle, northeast of Pensacola. So the only thing that has to do with Florida is these people were from Florida, which just goes to show you exactly what I said. Our next uh, article here is from NewScientist.com, and it's human brain boiled in its skull lasted 4,000 years. I haven't read this yet. This is the first time reading this. There's obviously a lot going on and there's definitely there's pictures of it here so again this will be in the show notes so take a look at that if you'd like to see this boiled brain so shaken scorched and boiled in its own juices this 4000 year old human brain has been through a lot it may look like nothing more than a bit of burnt log but it is one of the oldest brains ever found its discovery and the story of the story now being pieced together of its owner's last hours offers the tantalizing prospect that archaeological remains could harbor more ancient brain specimens than thought. If that's the case, it potentially opens the way... I don't know what's wrong with me here. Apparently I'm going through a second puberty here, so please excuse me why my voice cracks. If that's the case, it potentially opens the way to studying the health of brains in prehistoric times. Brain tissue is rich in enzymes that cause cells to break down rapidly after death, but this process can be halted if conditions are right. For instance, brain tissue has been found in the perfectly preserved body of an Inca child sacrificed 500 years ago. In this case, death occurred at the top of an Andean mountain where the body swiftly froze, preserving the brain. However, Sietomer Hoyuk The Bronze Age settlement in western Turkey where this brain was found is not in the mountains. So how did brain tissue survive in four skeletons dug up there between 2006 and 2011? Well, if the alcohol Raqqa was around 4,000 years ago, I can see how it would preserve a brain because I'm pretty sure it pickled mine back in the 90s. Now, Merrick Altanaz at Halak University in Istanbul, Turkey, who together with colleagues has been analyzing the find, says the clues are in the ground. The skeletons were found burnt in a layer of sediment that also contained charred wood objects. Given that the reason is tectonically active, 
Altnaz specializes, I'm so sorry, speculates that an earthquake flattened the settlement and buried the people before this fire spread through the rubble. The flames would have consumed any oxygen in the rubble and boiled the brains in their own fluids. The resulting lack of moisture and oxygen in the environment helped prevent tissue breakdown. The final factor in the brain's preservation was the chemistry of the soil, which is rich in potassium, magnesium, and aluminum. These elements reacted with the fatty acids from human tissue to form a soapy substance called adipocere. Now, I have all kinds of comments for this at the end. Being a former archaeologist and having dug a lot of human remains, I can comment on these. Also known as corpse wax, which I've never heard or used before, but corpse wax. It effectively preserved the shape of the soft brain tissue. The level of preservation in combination with the age is remarkable, says Frank Ruley at the University of Zurich, Switzerland, who has examined medieval brain tissue. Ruley says that most archaeologists don't bother looking for the remains of brain tissue because they assume it is seldom preserved. That is true if you're doing ancient burials, but the ones that I and my colleagues were doing were from the 1800s. So finding brains was actually rather frequent among other pieces of tissue. If you publish cases like this, people will be more and more aware that they could find original brain tissue too. In cases where the brain is as well preserved as this, Ruley says, it might even be possible to look for pathological conditions such as tumors and hemorrhaging and maybe even signs of degenerative disease. If we want to learn more about the history of neurological disorders, we need to have tissue like this. So, as I was saying before, yes, I digging in the, quite a few of the cemeteries and burial excavations that myself and friends have done, we did very often come upon uh, remains of brains. Most of the time, they would be shrunken down and still inside the cranium, but there were other times where the cranium had come apart and the brain was floating about. And sometimes you'd find it down at the wound uh, where the feet were. Because a lot of the times the, the casket would fill up with water and would flood down there. You'd also have uh, rodent infestation that would come up through it. Since they were just, you know, wood constructs, they weren't like these big fancy caskets that we have today so but it was definitely something that we would run into and i think it could lead to some really fascinating research in the future but that's our news for today so i don't know about you fine bizarro folks but there's nothing like hearing about boiled brains that says, man, I'm thirsty. So I have found this just the thing. If you happen to be down in Dawson City, you can join the Sour Toe Cocktail Club. Established in 1973, the Sour Toe Cocktail has become a time-honored tradition in Dawson City. To date, the club has over 100,000 members hailing from every corner of the world. So it makes you ask, how does one become a member? Well, there's five steps. The step one is come on down to the Sourdough Saloon and ask for the Captain River Rat. Step two, 
purchase a shot. Most club members prefer Yukon Jack. I haven't been able to drink that since college. That bothers me more than the idea of the toe. Step three, pledge the sour toe oath. Step four, watch as a genuine, actual dehydrated human toe is dropped in your drink. Step five, drink your sour toe cocktail. Now be sure to remember that the most important rule, you can drink it fast, you can drink it slow, but your lips have got to touch the toe. The the sour toe cocktail recipe is one ounce minimum of alcohol, one dehydrated human toe, and a garnish with courage. Now, even more bizarre than that is the actual origins of this cocktail. The legend of the first sour toe dates back to the 1920s and features a feisty rum runner named Louis Lincoln and his brother Otto. During one of their cross-border deliveries, they ran into an awful blizzard. In an effort to help direct his dog team, Louis stepped off the sled and into some icy overflow, soaking his foot thoroughly. Fearing that the police were on their trail, they continued on their journey. Unfortunately, the prolonged exposure to the cold caused Louis's big toe to be frozen solid. To prevent gangrene, the faithful Otto performed the amputation using a woodcutting axe and some overproof rum for anesthesia. To commemorate this moment, the brothers preserved the toe in a jar of alcohol. Years later, while cleaning out an abandoned cabin, the toe was discovered by Captain Dick Stevenson. After conferring with friends, as one would when finding an abandoned toe in a jar, the Sour Toe Cocktail Club was established and the rules developed. Since its inception, the club has acquired by donation over 10 separate, now dehydrated human toes. Now, I don't know about you, but yeah, sure, I'd probably try this. But, you know, I, I've i tried all kinds of weird and strange things. But imbibing alcohol with a soaking dehydrated human toe, that would definitely be a first for me. But yeah, I would definitely try it. Why not? Yeah, life's short. Drink a toe cocktail. Guess it could be worse. It's not that cobra stuff. I will find that snake alcohol, and I'll report on it here. But in the meantime, has anyone seen a good movie lately? Cinema Bizarro. Cinema Bizarro. Cinema Bizarro. Hey, everyone. I want to uh, <laughs> thank my, uh, my movie experiment squad here. Uh, Dennis and Dominic is here to talk about our movie for this episode, which is The Man Who Killed Hitler, and then The Bigfoot. So, this came out, this was released in February of uh, 2018, I believe. Could have been 2019, I'll look that up, I believe it was 2018. Oh, no, 2019, February 8th, 2019, starring Sam Elliott, um, Aiden Turner, which is the guy from... uh, um, being human, and uh, what was his name? Guy from Office Space, Ron Livingston. Ron Livingston, yes. So I was really prepared for this to be a complete and utter disaster of a Me film. Too. I mean, it's I, you set my expectations. For I, 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 I like to set expectations high, so I, I, <laughs> they're used to the usual dreck that I bring them over here to watch, like you know, uh, 
what, wang. What, wang Wang, which could be an episode coming up. That uh, was uh, for your height only, starring a two foot nine inch tall primordial dwarf Filipino James Bond. Which uh, again, that's a whole nother episode. But tonight was the man who killed Hitler, and then the Bigfoot, which didn't have a big foot. Who did not have a big foot? But we digress. Yeah, is Sam Elliott like nine feet tall? Is that why they look the same? He, yes, he and Chuck Norris are of infinite height, I believe. <laughs> yeah, but uh, the movie's set in 1987, and it's a story about Calvin Barr, who is Sam El- played by Sam Elliott. And he's an old man living in his last days in his quiet hometown with his dog. And uh, Barr reminisces about his past with flashbacks showing that during World War II he served as a special ops soldier on a mission to assassinate Hitler. So you kind of get this in the beginning, but he also seems really depressed and Maybe there's some evidence of PTSD there and just lives by himself. Which I found strange because he had only actually killed two things in his entire life. Really, really, really impacted. He was really upset about it, too. And it was was Hitler. It was Hitler. You know, of all things you're going to kill, Hitler's really high on the, oh, that's okay (laughs) scale. But I really like, actually, how he explained it didn't matter that he actually killed Hitler. The war went on, and it was on by heroes. Right. So that was really The movie was surprisingly, like, a heartfelt character study more than it was. Like, the killing of Hitler and the Bigfoot was almost inconsequential. Right. It was just about this guy coming to grips with his actions in the Mm -hmm. war, and what did he become out? He gave up everything. Everything. And he gave up the love of his life. Right, right. heard what happened to her. Um, They said she died young, young but we'll get to that. Um... So, yeah, he, he goes on a mission to assassinate Adolf Hitler, in which he you eventually see over time in flashbacks that he does pull off successfully. Yeah, However, the operation was classified and never revealed to the public, and both sides hid the, uh, the fact. And you, you learn that through the movie that the, uh, the person that shot themselves in the bunker was just another decoy. But again, you know, it's, it's the first, like, what feels like almost half the movie is just... Sam Elliott being like, oh, fuck, I lived through another day. God damn. So it's really kind of, you know, kind of a bummer in the beginning. What was the name of his operation that he went on? Did they give us a name? I don't know. Uh, they they talked about actually, Valkyrie, yeah, Valkyrie, which they said was one of the other decoys. Operation Mustache. Right? It was It was Operation uh, Mustache, yes, or op- Operation Eric Stoltz with a big head. I never saw him. Where? Oh, he wasn't really in it. He, I just like making fun of Mask because it's Mask. Oh, I was wondering. I thought maybe I missed him because you guys were talking oh, about Eric, Eric Stoltz. Stoltz. Oh, no, no. <laughs> I just thought that at any point, wherever Sam Elliott is, Eric Stoltz with a really big uneven head and Elephant Man Syndrome should be able to just pop into the scene like in a Family Guy skit. But uh, so I, you see Barr go around his day-to-day routine. Um, he goes to his visit his brother Ed, who is a owns a barber shop. Uh, he gets jumped by a bunch of these thugs who try to steal his car. Uh, who he, you know, did he kill all of them? Or I think he, he beat the shit out of them for yeah, sure. He yeah, he messed yeah. them up pretty bad. The lead um, to the forehead always. <laughs> yeah, right. Impressive. So then uh, it, he eventually gets uh, contacted by these government people. There's a black van and a black car and. 
they come in and if the license plate just says U.S. government. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know they're very clandestine, <laughs> and they come him to let him know that you know all this stuff that he's been seeing in the newspaper about a serial killer wasn't true, and that it was actually a terrible Armageddon disease being spread by the Bigfoot. That's right, the Bigfoot is uh, the giant end-all typhoid Mary, so he needs. At whatever he is, 80, 70, whatever it says he is in here, uh, send his old Sam Elliott ass out there and kill Bigfoot. And climb El Capitan. <laughs> He's gonna, on his way out. <laughs> I know, he just heads off, heads off into these mountains, and the next thing you know, he's like... 400 feet in the air climbing El Capitan. I'm like, what? He pulled a Yoda because his 90-year-old ass was limping through the and fucking then, woods. How's he climbing up? He's limping going down the yeah. street in the beginning. And well, now... I like, I like how when he was picking his weapons, he's at, I went, that gun, that scope, and that knife, and that's it. And he had like a plethora of all these weapons he could have right? chosen. And he chose... And he's like, oh, I'll have the shit. M1 yeah. and this fairly 1987-esque scope. And that K-bar knife. And a K-bar, right. <laughs> Right. With a in the stock. Right. But, you know, he killed Hitler with the, the hilt of a knife screwed into something screwed into a belt his, buckle. His, his and pen was the... Uh, the pen was with the, the um, barrel. The barrel, and I think the bullets as well were And then it, he the was pen. able to screw a flask on that he yeah. shot through that to make it the silencer. That was a cool suppressor for sure. But, uh, and young uh, Sam Elliott is, pay, is played by... Uh, oh, darn, I always remember. Is uh, Aiden uh, Turner who was the vampire in the British series of Being Human, about the vampire, the werewolf, and the ghost that all lived together. The frightening thing is he looks exactly the same, except his hair is shorter. So, you know, maybe that was more of an accurate show than we thought. But so they get Sam Elliott, and, and they take him to their top-secret headquarters or wherever, and of course, you know, oh, they, they, they tell him that they had, just happened to still have some of his blood around, which they tested, and he turned out amazingly to just be completely immune to the virus of the Armageddon Bigfoot. So uh, they take him to their base and everyone's in their, in their, you know, hazmat level five suits and he can just walk around cause he's immune, you know? So uh, yeah, they, they take him somewhere and they get him all suited up and he picks yeah, a whole big pegboard full of rifles and types of rifles. He you know, picks, you know, I don't know what it was. It looked like a looked like an M1 carbine, yeah. And then put like a hunting scope on it, and they sent him out to climb El Capitan or wherever <laughs> he was. And then he's just hopping through the woods, and it's like within two seconds, Bigfoot's like sitting up against a tree, doing whatever Bigfoots do when they sit up against a tree. So was he the only Bigfoot? That's why he's the Bigfoot. Uh, he's the, the he Bigfoot, old as fuck. Like he's been around. I, he for a was couple the million most years. frightening, yeah, no, no, emaciated vampire-looking crypt keeper, <laughs> crypt keeper, crypt keeper, crypt keeper face. Yeah. Bigfoot I have ever seen. Yeah. So he takes a pot shot at the Bigfoot and just kind of grazes him. So he has to track him now, and he finds a bunch of, I don't know, shit-looking stuff. And he's like, ah, oh, poultice. So, you know, Bigfoot's healing himself. And then the next thing he finds, it's like his turds. And, you know, he's smelling the scat, and he's like, oh, he's a vegetarian. Which is weird, right. which is strange. And I, almost, I, I thought maybe it was going to go off to a different plot twist because if he said it was a vegetarian then why are all the other animals catching the virus from him? I think he's just making contact? Or well, I mean, he doesn't just, he doesn't fuck vegetarian. Something? Well, well. <laughs> oh, maybe he's yeah, a little <laughs> deer. You know, or, or it's one of those, you know, 
he leans over to the rabbit, excuse me, does shit stick to your fur? And the rabbit's like, no. So he wipes his ass with the rabbit. There you go. You know, and passes, I don't know how this and is going on. Virus I, I, yeah, but evidently it's like jumping species. So he has to go out and kill Bigfoot. And he's wandering through the forest and climbing El Capitan. And he finally comes up on this crag of rocks and finds the shriveled, vampiric, nasty-ass mess of a Bigfoot with the... He had like saggy ass old man titties. He had no nose. Had no, no the nose was like nose. a bat, all pushed yeah. up like a bat. I don't. It was more like a vampire than a. I like Dennis's uh, description. It, it was it was a crypt keeper. It was a yeah. It was very creepy. It, it like creepy. living dead, emaciated, Bigfoot. But uh, so he finds him, and you know, you you guess there's a little touching moment where he's like, I didn't want it to come to this. And then, you know, shoots him and then puts like 10 sticks on him and tries to light it on fire for a pyre funeral in which it then wakes up and knocks him down the rock. Uh, they fight at some point, breaks his arm. I think that's before all this, but breaks his yeah, arm. Him yeah, yeah, and then he shoot. bites him. Uh, big The Bigfoot Takes bites his ear, ear. off. <laughs> And then he kind of collapsed, kills him on those crags of rocks. Oh, don't finally. forget the Bigfoot throws up on him several times. Oh, yeah. When they're fighting after the funeral pyre thing, and the Bigfoot wakes up, he's on top of Elliot, and he's just like, um, stand by me, the Barfarama scene, sprays of vomit shooting on on yes. Sam Elliot for no apparent reason. No, it was mouth and all. And then he Sam Elliot the, the he kills the Bigfoot, and then Sam Elliot kind of lays down. And the next thing you know, you're at Sam Elliot's funeral, and his brother's officiating, and he says nice things, and everyone goes about it, and yeah, they talk about. You know, the next day, I guess when he's at work and people, you know, a guy comes in, so they sorry about your brother. And then the next thing you know, the brother's fishing and Sam Elliott walks up. So I guess he faked his death and everything. But throughout the whole movie, he keeps pulling out this box, this box, this box. box. And he never, yeah. he never opens it. He always comes close to open and puts it away. So then now that they faked his death, his brother had buried it. So he's got to go and dig up his casket. And everything, get down, and he gets the box, opens it, but they don't show you what it is and closes it again. Now, in the flashbacks, throughout the whole movie, you see him develop this relationship with this beautiful blonde, and they develop this thing, but he has to go away to war, and she ends up moving on, and then they say she dies young. So I'm always wondering, is it her ashes, or... Who yeah, knows? Who knows? Is it the ring that he, he almost Right, because in one party tries to propose, but, you know, I have to leave at least one thing in there for when you people run out immediately <laughs> to yeah. wherever it is <laughs> that you can get access to Amazon and order this film. <laughs> no, I, I'm not getting paid to say this. Gwyneth Paltrow's head is not in the box. No, it is not Gwyneth Paltrow's head that you now ruined because he hasn't seen it. He won't. Oh, that's true. He doesn't yeah. even know what we're talking about. No, I don't. I'm lost on <laughs> He doesn't even know. <laughs> Never mind. What's in the box? <laughs> but so that was, uh, so what else, what else do you think? You know, I, I, I definitely went into this thinking this was going to be a complete schlock film. Yeah. Right. I mean, honestly, I, I did. I, I thought it was going to be like a movie that where it just made no sense. It was going to be like, oh my God, I'm going to watch my watch until I can get the hell out of here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those movies are coming, sir. Yeah. But, those but movies are coming. But in all honesty, coming. I mean, it was, it was, I mean, it's Sam Elliott. 
you know, it, he's a great actor. And, right. And, and, but it was really, it really captivated you the entire movie. I mean, you were it really, was good. you were yeah. ready for him to find out what was going to happen next. And, and, and the only thing for me that, that didn't get answered is what was in the freaking box. What was in the box? Maybe it's a new movie relatively. So maybe there'll be another one. You oh, know? I can't wait. Oh, you know, yeah. it'd be the man sent him after the, the man who killed JFK and <laughs> the aliens starring Sam yeah. Raimi's corpse as Quetzalcoatl. Quetzalcoatl. The man who killed Quetzalcoatl and the wall. I, but uh, I, I did. I really. I mean, I actually yeah. enjoyed the movie. It was really, it was really well I, made. I don't know what was. I, I tried watching it before, and I just kind of skimmed through it to see what it was, and then wanted to save it for this. So I even skimming through it, I'm like, this is gonna be terrible. <laughs> this is gonna be absolutely terrible. I can't wait to make them suffer through this. I still want to make you watch the Steagle. Oh, the goddamn Steagle! You've been bringing that movie up for like a decade or more. The Steagle. Uh, I guess I have it coming. All the crap I've made them watch. And you just wait. One of these episodes, I'm bringing on Paul Persenza, the Mukau from uh, Indie Film Cafe and Horror Movie Classics. And, uh, oh, the films he'll put you through. I'm afraid. Yeah. There's so much great schlock horror. And this was just surprisingly not. This is the first time, second time I ever sat down to watch a bad movie and went, oh, wow, that was actually pretty decent. Would this be considered a horror movie? No. No? Okay. No, I figured it was action-adventure type thing, but I, well, I don't even know if it was action-adventure. No. It was like depression, and it was like the deer hunter, except it was he was hunting I, Hitler. Did he mouth? That's the only, I mean, really, that's the only thing that I, I would have criticism over the movie, is they left you hanging at the very end with this stupid fox. Right. And at least they, I mean, they answered all the other questions. The dinosaur they brought back. You know, oh, yeah. they showed what the right. dinosaur was. It wasn't an actual dinosaur, but you'll have to watch to find at least that part. You know, they answered that question. Right. And, you know, it just... It but the hard questions that you guys brought up during the movie is if Bigfoot is carrying this disease and Sam Elliott is immune to the disease, but Bigfoot bites him, and is he now not... Yeah, and vomits all over him. Maybe now Sam Elliott is carrying the disease and he's a carrier spreading it unknowingly. Or why did he, why did, why the vomit scene? Right. Why? And it's like, it wasn't even just like a, uh, and some blood comes out of his mouth. They really wanted you to be sure you picked up on the fact that he was projectile vomiting (laughs) at an inordinate speed into Sam Elliott's Face. Maybe it was well, all the stabs. Oh, maybe. And really, and plus, why did he have to fake his death? He I lived in the same town as his brother. Death, or if they assumed he was dead and buried him, and then he shows up later. Because like you pointed out, there was a decent amount of grass Gra- on right. his grave. And it looked like it was flat like all the other ones, so maybe it, it had, had been, been a years. while. Right before but you he went back. the bandage on his ear would have yeah, been his off, bandage, but he had the bandage on his Oh, he brain. still had it when he, he went back to... And he yeah, still had yeah. his arm in a sling from one of the Oh, that's broken. right. Because uh, he was like, <laughs> yeah, cracks really it all. trying over. to make chronological like logic out of this movie. I don't I, I've done it with worse films. I've done it. Just just wait till you see like it, you know terror at Blood Fart Lake. Oh my god. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, you haven't lived or uh, Thanks Killing th- two three the one with the horrible Muppet Sound Grandma that is. Horror movie. 
Besides, that's yeah. just in a... Oh, no, you got to be here for Because we're going to watch Hatchet. No, three? Sure. It's the one with the, the decapitated corpse that keeps... Oh, yeah. Is that undulating? Or, or so, that your Dom does not God. like horror films. No, God Dom's a big one. So, uh, do <laughs> know that I'm not going to invite you over to watch, like, you know, House of a Thousand Corpses <laughs> or something that I know will upset you and send you back to your wife in a fetal position. <laughs> Nothing with clowns. Nothing with <laughs> nothing with so much for the Joker, which we'll have to do on another show. If you want to see a shitty movie? You need to watch Thirty One. Thirty One. My God. Well, that is our uh, cinema bizarro for this episode. So if you get a chance, or you see it out there, or it shows up somewhere, and you see the man who killed Hitler, and then the Bigfoot, make sure you watch it. Cause yeah, you, I don't think you'll be disappointed. Oh, and it did get like a 75 or 76 on rotten tomatoes. So other people other than us liked it, but, uh, so that's a uh, cinema bizarro. You're wandering your town and turn into an alley. You have never noticed before the sights and sounds of an ancient marketplace surround you. You have found the market bizarro. Beijing, bundled up on a wind-whipped day, about 30 people lined up outside a restaurant takeout window here, waiting for rabbit heads. For guests in the main dining room, a video explained how to eat the fist-sized heads. Su Yang, the restaurant's enthusiastic chef and star of the video, demonstrated by pulling open the rabbit's mouth and separating the jaw from the skull before splitting the jawbone in two and sucking off the succulent meat. In case there was any confusion, brochures with diagrams rested on each table. Mr. Sue is a sort of rabbit-head evangelist, drawing celebrities to his restaurant, Old Street Rabbit, to help drum up crowds. He holds aloft one half of a tiny jawbone, explaining that it can be employed as a pick and then use the incisor to scoop out an eye window to the bunny's soul. Food fashions come and go. But perhaps the oddest and most obscure can be found in China. Scorpions and dogs made comebacks after the long culinary dry spell of the Mao years. Eating animal heads, preferably heavily spiced, is the latest repast to enjoy a growth in popularity. This isn't novelty food. Rather, it's much-loved local street food with deep cultural roots, which has spread from the provinces into China's biggest cities. Few things throw the differences between cultures into such stark relief as what people eat. Frogs and snails in France, offal and oat-stuffed stomachs in Scotland, pig's feet in Germany. Latter-day Americans have long made fun of the specialties served by their European cousins, but in China, cat and rat and even donkey penis can give the American palate pause. Or even some Chinese palates. Thanks to Chinese decades-long economic boom, the increasingly cosmopolitan, educated, and urban-bred young are drifting away from their rustic culinary roots. But that same boom is driving a culinary revival, with chefs rediscovering dishes that haven't been seen for decades. Franchising, licensing, and outright copycatting, meanwhile, have spread many regional specialties to the cities. No one can pinpoint when the Chinese took a liking to eating animal heads. It began, no doubt, as peasant food. Meat was a rare and expensive treat, so people developed a taste for the bits that wealthier classes discarded. This, 
coupled with repeated famine, accounts for what Westerners regard as the otter dishes on Chinese menus. Of course, people eat animal heads elsewhere, but they generally are rendered unrecognizable before they are delivered to the table. While pig heads, goat heads, and even dog heads are eaten in China, the reigning triumvirate is fish, duck, and rabbit, each of which has restaurants devoted to its preparations. Fish heads have the longest history and widest acceptance, at least in part because they don't come from mammals. Restaurants offer regional seasonings ranging from the heavily soy-based sauces typical of China's northeast to the fiery spices popular in Hunan and Sichuan provinces, to the milder ginger and scallion flavors common to the southern coast. These aren't marrow, bony fish faces, but the big, meaty front ends of fathead carp, which offer plenty to eat. One head is enough for two people easily. Eating rabbit head, meanwhile, is a messy business, so much to that that some diners are supplied with aprons and plastic gloves. Anecdotal accounts credit a woman named Chen from a suburb of the provincial Sichuan capital of Chengdu with popularizing spicy rabbit head in the 1990s. Much as pock-faced woman named Chen from Chengdu suburb popularized spicy tofu, the now ambiguous Mapu Dofu earlier in the century. The more recent Mrs. Chen, a factory worker in the Chengdu suburb of Changliu, opened a small hot pot restaurant to supplement her income, and one day dropped some of the rabbit heads that her son loved to eat into the spicy soup. What came out has been called Old Mother Rabbit Head ever, ever since. So popular was the dish that she named her restaurant Old Mother Rabbit Head, is now one of the most famous rabbit head establishments in Sichuan. Imitators sprang up around the country, prompting the restaurant to put up a sign stating that it is the one and only Old Mother Rabbit Head restaurant and warning that there are no branches. Mr. Su, the chef at Old Street Rabbit Restaurant in Beijing, said that he learned to cook rabbit head with Old Mother Chen herself, now in her 70s. A rabbit head connoisseur, if ever there was one, Mr. Su says his restaurant serves 3,000 rabbit heads a day. But rabbit heads are a niche dish compared with the popularity of duck heads, which spread from the central Chinese city of Wuhan, where the spicy heads are a local specialty. Duck head restaurants range from full-service tablecloth establishments to simple shops where beer and a bowl of split duck skulls are the main fare. The chefs of Pang Chang, who wears faux Chanel earrings and a fake fur collar parka dishes up 300 heads a day from the stark storefront furnished with red vinyl booths. Ms. Pang buys cases of frozen heads from a local market, then has her chef thaw them under running water for six hours to leach them of bad smells before simmering them in a spicy soup. The heads are split lengthwise and stir-fried in a mixture of dry herbs and spices. A bowl of seven heads costs 62 yuan, or about 10 bucks. What does it all taste like? Fish heads are not fishy, but small bones abound. The brain and eye with which some regard as treats are acquired tastes. Now, rabbit heads, meanwhile, come in two flavors, numbingly hot and seasoned with five spices. The meat, predictably, tastes like the dark meat of chicken. The eyes, brain, tongue, and soft palate, which are preserved by Mr. Sue as the most delectable morsels, are more about texture than taste. Now, duck heads 
might be the most appealing of the Western palate. Eating one is not unlike eating a super spicy chicken wing, except for the beak and that accusing eye. And for those who can't decide, the signature snack in Kuzan, a town south of Shanghai, is three heads, one foot, or a rabbit head, a duck head, and a fish head, served on one plate with two goose feet. So, yeah, I don't know about anyone else, but now I'm hungry. But I guess if, uh, if anyone out there has had any of these or try any of these, you know, please hit us up at the Gmail, bizarroaficionado at gmail.com, and uh, let us know what your experience is in your market bizarro. Okay, well, that draws to a close this first sample episode of Bizarro Aficionado. It's uh, just a sort of an introduction to what I have planned. Uh, there'll be interviews, roundtables, weird movie reviews, strange places, strange food or drinks. So stay tuned, everyone. And if you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I would also like to thank Dennis and Dominic for reviewing The Man Who Killed Hitler and then The Bigfoot. A huge continuing thank you to Rojan over at Project Archivist Podcast for all his guidance, advice, and tips on making me start this uh endeavor a much easier experience it would have been without him i'd also like to thank chasing z's for letting me use some of his music and if you want to check him out and you like his music i will put all that information into the show notes but you can definitely find him over on soundcloud on amazon apple music that's chasing z's chasing then three z's and uh, check him out check his other music out it's fantastic and i'm sure you'll hear him again also, if you'd like to get in touch with me, please join the Facebook group or email us at bizarroaficionado at gmail.com. And if you have a strange experience or want to share a story, drop us a line. Maybe I'll read it on air here and uh, share it, if that's okay with you, with other people. And maybe you'll find that other people have had the same weird experience you have. But until the next episode, make sure everyone, you stay bizarro. Good night.